0: Well, I get the privilege of introducing uh, Pastor Josh Waltz, who hails from Parker, Colorado. Uh, I noticed that little typo. You're from Parker Hills Bible Fellowship, but not say? from Parker Hills. It's actually Parker, Colorado. Um, I had the privilege of, right out of Bible school, um, I went to Parker Hills and I interned with Josh doing a pastoral internship um, which was a blast mainly because I got to hang out with Josh and, and uh, he just allowed me to sit in on, on things that I uh, probably shouldn't have, like uh, some elder meetings and, and things like that, which really helped me grow um, just being involved in pastoral ministry and seeing what he does, seeing him in action and, and, and preaching all summer. Um, just some background uh, for Josh. He graduated from Maranatha Baptist Bible College. And, uh, then later went on to, uh, Southern Seminary where he got his MDiv. Um, a little, little known fact about Josh is he's the only speaker that has spoken at every fellowship in the gospel so far. And, and the, the first fellowship in the gospel, um, he was the keynote speaker. So, some history there. Uh, but the reason why, uh, Josh is always asked back here is because of his uh, faithfulness to see Christ as the interpretive key in all of Scripture. And so, uh, would you welcome Josh back to Fellowship in the Gospel once again?
1: Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. Happy to address you, Um on this subject of shame, I think the other reason I'm always invited to speak at the Fellowship in the Gospel Conference is I'm one of Jeff's closest friends, so I always get that invitation, and uh, what happened was he and I attended a conference in Minneapolis together, and um, one of the younger speakers addressed one of the older speakers who was the conference coordinator and said, I am so pleased to be invited to speak at this conference. I can't believe I'm speaking at this conference, which you coordinated and you invited me to. I would fly across the country to cut your grass, much less speak at a conference. Well, the very first Fellowship in the Gospel Conference, McKeever had not cut his grass all spring. And I came and stayed at his house and saw he hadn't mowed his grass and cut his grass. That's why I think I get invited to this conference, <laughs> because um, we're friends and I cut his grass. So, Well, this... Um, a sign topic is, uh, from freedom. What, how does it, how does it read exactly? From freedom freedom. or from guilt to freedom, no longer gripped by shame. Um, and what kind of surprised me as I started studying shame in the scriptures is how prevalent this theme is. And we'll just probably get the tip of the iceberg as we get into it a little bit this evening. Thank you so much. Um, as we delve into the biblical data on this subject. Uh, yes, I'm thankful. Okay, uh, thank you so much. Um, there's just so much here. And there's not only a lot about shame in the scriptures, there's a lot about shame in our own lives. Um, is, is that true? I mean, there are parts of our story, parts of our lives, that, that if other people knew... Now, there may be some in this room who have disclosed everything. Maybe when you got married or you got engaged, you told your uh, spouse or, or spouse to be, your wife to be, you know, this is my whole story, here's everything, and she's heard all of it. Uh, but chances are there are parts of your life, there are parts of my life that I think no one knows, except God. Not current, ongoing, I mean, by God's grace, but man, there are parts of my story. I remember the very first time, uh, and probably the first deeply shameful experience I had. Um, I was in college. Uh, there were things that had happened before that that I'm ashamed of now, but at the time, the shame didn't register as deeply. I uh, called my pastor. Hey, I'd love to get together with you. I need to talk with you about something. He's like, great, let's go to lunch. So we go out to lunch. We go to the buffet. We get our food. We sit down at the table. He goes, so what do you want to talk to me about? And I wanted to talk to him about keeping a pure mind. That's probably what most of us think about when we think about shame. Uh, and by the way, there's a book in the book ta- in, the, in the bookstore on shame, specifically as attached to sexual sin. That's not what I'm primarily going to talk about, but uh, that's what I want to talk to my pastor about. And uh, he goes, okay, I, I, I'm glad you'd want to talk to me about that. I want to help you with that. But i got to know what I'm dealing with. So just tell me, is there pornography involved, and do you masturbate? And I was like... You know, I, I wasn't looking for you to do that. I just want you to help me move forward. you know, I was so ashamed to have to answer those questions in that moment. Um, and uh, it's it's a such a prevalent problem. Um, i'm a, I'm a chaplain for the police department in Parker, and last Friday, I went on a ride a week ago tonight. I went on a ride specifically because I knew that on the second shift, an incident had happened that it would probably be good for some of these cops to have a chaplain to talk with because of what they experienced Thursday. On Thursday, at the very beginning of their afternoon shift, a call came into the police department, a 911 call from a frantic mom that she thought her son was dead. High school kid, um... 16 years old, sophomore in high school, goes to the high school where my sons, uh, two of my boys are in high school, the high school where two of my boys go, um, she had come home from from work and found a note on the counter that said, if you find this note, I'm dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Called 911, dispatch, of course, immediately, the whole shift basically descended on this house, and two cops, whom I'm personal friends with, both went upstairs and found this young man he had shot himself in the back of the head over the bathtub. The gun was just, just they couldn't even see the gun. It was under this pool of, of bloody water and ended his life. And the suicide note described things in just the most um, devastated, shame-laden terms. Devastating, shame-laden terms. Um, that he had evil inside and demons inside and his mom just recently had found some porn on his uh, smartphone and had called him out on it. And it was a Christian family. And he was so ashamed of what she had found and how she had handled it and that he took his own life. Um, And, uh, and, and, you know, so here I am a week or two removed from teaching this and, uh, talked to the few cops about shame and grace and how to handle a situation like that. So his story, tragic ending doesn't have to end that way. And that's what we want to see is how Christ, of course, uh, covers and and atones and cares for us in our shame. So let's pray and then we'll jump into this. Father, I ask for your help. Such a, such a broad subject, such a deep and, uh, important And common and familiar theme. And I ask please for your help to make uh, uh, clear to us the glory of the cross. I pray for a great, just a powerful impression of Christ. uh, To grip us and to both expose us and show us that perhaps we're worse than we would ever even imagine. And then also to heal us and cover us and help us and restore us, and just wash us in grace. So I pray for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start at the beginning of the story, because that's where the story of shame begins. So open to Genesis chapter 2. One of the things that surprised me as I started this study was that the Bible's treatment of shame starts at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-five.
0: Hey Josh, mm-hmm. I have a question before we get started. Yeah, go. So the title from guilt to freedom, on know grip by shame. Are we using guilt and shame
1: interchangeably? No. Yeah, great question. I'm glad. I'm glad you asked that. Where's um, the distinction? Uh, yeah, I've made a distinction. Um, in in this, I would I would put them in the same category, but shame is a deeper, more profound guilt says I think as one as one guy put it guilt says I've made a mistake shame says I am a mistake um, guilt says I have a problem uh, again similarly shame says I am the problem so it's deeper it's a it's a it's in the guilt family but, um, that tends to be the distinction that's made theologically is that Guilt is what I've done. Shame is just who I am. And if you see that about me, oh, the shame. Oh, the... And and what I want to do is show, if we have time, the three most prominent metaphors that the scriptures use for shame. And then I want to talk a bit about how we tend to cope with those experiences, all of which are in that shame category. Then to show, and I think, I mean... I know some of you guys. I know you know the ways that the various aspects of the gospel map right onto those aspects of shame. Those, those three prominent metaphors for shame. I mean, the gospel directly connects to each one of those. And then hopefully, if we have time, make some applications and take some questions at the end. So Genesis 2:25, and the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. There's our there's our word, there's our notion. Obviously, this is the opposite, not ashamed. Not ashamed. But that only lasts for a little while. Verse 1 of chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All three of the prominent biblical metaphors for shame are right here. One of them is really explicit, and the other two are implied. And so we'll just look at them all right here. Uh, But The place to start, of course, is in verse 25. There was no shame. The shame that's ubiquitous, that we all feel, that we all relate to, is an intruder. The the original created... In the original created order, the way human beings were made, we were not designed to be ashamed, even naked. Um, And so what we think is inherent to our humanness, just that feeling that I need to cover. Um, And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But that feeling is not a God-designed, a God-ordained feeling. And the point, of course, of Adam and Eve being naked is not primarily nudity. I mean, that's what's the point of that description? I I mean, I think they literally were. I just don't think that's, you know, the point is not they're nude, and so he's always checking her out. I mean, I don't think that's primarily the point. I think the point is vulnerability right? Openness, nothing to hide. Um, There's there's a complete freedom from self-consciousness, that they are utterly known by one another without feeling exposed. Um, And that's the way God originally designed for us to be. Wouldn't that be incredible? To just be thoroughly, completely, utterly, wholly known, every part of your story, every part of who you are, and 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 having made yourself that vulnerable, still be safe, and you know, accepted, and um, that, that's the way God designed for it to be. That's where it starts. And all that changed instantly with the first sin, the first effect of sin that at least is recorded for us in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, is a sense of shame. The eyes of them both were opened and they knew they were naked again it's it, the point is not nudity it's not that they looked down and went oh my word I can has this been hanging out the whole time I mean right <laughs> they knew they had seen that they knew the point was suddenly self-consciousness the point was that there was a sudden sense of shame that's the contrast is with verse twenty eight where they were naked and not ashamed and suddenly they knew they were naked the point is they they were ashamed of that now The gospel restores what sin destroyed. It's just a fundamental understanding. It runs all through the scriptures. So we should expect that when Christ comes, part of what he does is restore that ability to be naked and unashamed, to be utterly open, to be completely vulnerable, wholly known, and not feel exposed. We should expect the gospel to take us back to paradise and then as Jesus always does transcend even that to make it even better than it was before and that's what we'll see that's what we'll see where it goes um there's another thing that we see right away about about nakedness and nakedness as shame that's the first primary metaphor here and that's how that shame accumulates lies around it doesn't it look at verse one chapter three verse one the serpent casts a shadow on God's word. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the, of any tree of the garden? It's not quite the way God put it. Verse four, he directly contradicts God's word. You, you will not surely die. God's holding out on you, right? So shame tends to accumulate lies around it. Lies that we believe before we commit the act of which we're later ashamed. Lies that we believe once we've committed the act. How do I handle this now? Well, the best way to handle it is, and and we believe lies. I mean, lies just pile up around shame. Some shame in our lives, and I'm not going to deal much with this, but some shame in our lives isn't due to our own activities. It's what others have done to us. Sometimes we're sinned against, and it's deeply shameful. Um... And and, and we'll talk a bit more about it in just a moment. But that's part of the point of those laws in Leviticus about cleanness and uncleanness. And when an unclean thing comes in contact with a clean thing, the clean thing gets contaminated. The point being, shamefulness is a communicable disease. Sometimes wrong behaviors are perpetrated on an innocent person, and the shame isn't just on the perp. It's, it's on the victim. And if that's your case, um, Christ can atone for that as well and can address that as well. Um, and, and that's a situation where the lies are always perpetrated, you know, the falsehood. Um, look at the contrast between verse 5 and verse 7, in particular about eyes being opened. Satan says, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. In verse 7, their eyes were opened, weren't they? That's expressly what it says. Exact same phrase. Exact same terms. I mean in Hebrew, and and, and obviously here in English. Satan promises, if you'll eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and what will happen? You will transcend this limited human place. You'll be like God. You'll get better. Verse 7 says, when they ate, their eyes, in fact, were opened. Did they get better? No, they fell from where they were. They were at this place. Satan promised them this place. Their eyes would be opened and they'd be elevated and could transcend their humanness. And in fact, they fell from their created glory in their humanness. And um, it's the boomerang effect of shame, so to speak. Shame brings out the boomerang effect of sin. You know, it's promising one thing and we expect that we're going to elevate ourselves and make our lives better and we do this thing and in fact it leaves us so much worse um, and that, that nakedness metaphor um, also um, there's another symptom attached to that I guess I'd say uh, look at verse 10 we didn't read all the way down there but you know what happens um, well, let's pick it up in verse 8 Uh, shame is always accompanied by an irrational self-protective fear isn't it uh, it's, it's, they're ashamed and so they cover and then they hide and they hide from God the God whom they know knows where they are um, is where they are and and they hide and it's interesting the the question that the Lord asks him, you know where are you? And then the next one, who told you you were naked? Um, their their eating of the fruit, their breaking of God's law, didn't change anything visible about themselves. It didn't um, it didn't alter them outwardly whatsoever. You know, it just changed something on the inside. Something, on the inside got twisted and broken, and. Um, because of that, they were irrationally afraid. And uh, their view of themselves became polluted. And uh, that that radical vulnerability of nakedness was suddenly a huge threat. They had always been that way. It was just suddenly <clears throat> threatening to them. Their, their perspective changed. Which leads to, I think, one of the most important things about this. And that is that shame fundamentally has to do with our relationship with God. Everything does. There's a phrase theologians use for this, quorum Deo. Does anybody know what that means, this Latin phrase? Before the face of God. Before the face of God. All of our lives are lived in relationship to God. I I don't mean by that all of our lives are in right relationship with God through Christ. That's true of some people, but not true of everybody. But it is true of everybody that everyone lives before the face of God. Everything we do, we do in some relation to God. We never simply experience life. We always experience life in one relation to God or another. Either um, honoring him, submitting to him, rightly related to him, in joy in him, or um, afraid of him, hiding from him. Well aware that our fundamental problem is not, oh my goodness, you can see my nakedness and I'm scared of you. But it's, I need to hide from God, is, is fundamentally the cause of the shame. And, uh, so we see all these aspects of nakedness. Now, just think about, just think about that in and of itself. I mean, if you were totally ripped, like, like me, um, if you, I only got one half <laughs> chuckle out of that. From Gabe. From Gabe? Who's the other totally ripped one in the room? If you were totally, totally, I mean, just, you know, life svelte, you know, just, just looking. at, would nakedness be all that bad? Would there be that much to be ashamed? Why is nakedness this shame-inducing idea? Well, it's shame-inducing because it's accompanied by another aspect of, of, of shame, uh, something, uh, a second biblical metaphor for shame, and that is the idea of corruption. Um... It's not the nakedness in and of itself that is shame-inducing. It's that I'm naked and I'm not what I'm supposed to be. That's the problem. That what you're going to see in me is bad, and we see that in this story as well, right? The the corruption, the defilement, the uncleanness, um, that, uh, that that that. Adam and Eve's perception of themselves is suddenly altered, not in the sense that they suddenly realize they don't have clothes on, but they suddenly feel like they're not what they should be. They're corrupted. They're defiled. And uh, this is where that connection to what other people do to us is sometimes shame-inducing, because they can defile us. They can corrupt us. Obviously, abuse is the most prominent example of that. When, When I'm abused by someone else, sexually, verbally, physically that that touch that um, those words corrupt and because then I as the victim am corrupted by that I feel shame. It's not just the nakedness in and of itself. It's that here I am presented, open, vulnerable, exposed, and you can see that I'm not what I should be. That's the problem. Um, that defilement that just uh that just Runs through the scriptures. I mean, the book of Leviticus really picks this theme up, doesn't it? Defilement. Because you have all those laws about what is clean and what is unclean, and, uh, a couple of points emerging from, from, from all of that, that, as I mentioned earlier, the clean and wholesome can become corrupted by contact with, with something else that's already defiled. That's one way that shame is transmitted to us. Um, and another point, you know, that that comes out of that is that when corruption, defilement, uncleanness is on us, that we gotta take it to God to get it fixed. That's part of what Leviticus is teaching us. We can take it to God and He can fix that thing. He can take care of that. And, and so we see that metaphor of, um, defilement and uncleanness coming out in, in this story here. It's interesting, you have have three categories in Leviticus. Four, but you can kind of clump them into three. You have clean things and unclean things. The the unclean, of course, defiled things, right? That's what we're talking about, this metaphor for shame. But things in the clean category, there are two uh, subsets of clean. Can you think of what they are? There's like a super clean And then a ordinary clean in Leviticus. Super common word in Leviticus. Holy. Those are the the ultra clean things, if you will. Um, And then there are the non-holy but clean things. And we might use the word profane. And I don't mean, I think we think of profane as like either blasphemous or corrupted. Profane just means comic. So, There's the defiled stuff, and then there's the clean stuff. And within that category, you have things devoted to God, which are holy. And then just the everyday things that are clean. It was interesting reading all the references in Leviticus to holy. Um, Holy things relate to common things and unclean things. In three different ways. This is really fascinating to me. Um, sometimes the holy is a threat to the common. Can you think of any biblical examples of that? A, a common thing, a person, uh, an animal, uh, uh, something comes in contact with the holy and it is a clear threat to that thing that it's just come in contact with God or, or something associated with God. Can you think of any examples of that? Touching the yeah, as I touched the ark, bang, he was dead the holy was a threat to the profane. And again, by profane, I don't mean evil. I just mean common. That's literally what the word means. So the holy is a threat to the common. I touched the ark and he was killed. Can you think of any other example? <clears throat> Mount Sinai, right? Don't let any animals touch the holy mountain. Because mm-hmm. if they do, they will die. Um, the Isaiah, what?
0: The holy of holies in the
1: temple. Yep. It, it, yep, great example. It's possible the high priest goes in there and his sacrifice is rejected and he dies because he's in the presence of the holy. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the Lord, hears that pronouncement, holy, 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 and falls on his face because he says, I am undone. Um, the, the, the holy is a threat. And again, holy is devoted to God. That's what that idea means. It's it's devoted to God.
0: Has that seen in scripture where he's not... He's not, uh, I think it's Moses who can't look at the Lord. If he looks at the mm-hmm. Lord, he's got to turn and just kind of see the backside of the yep. Lord passing by.
1: Yeah, no man can see me and live. live. Mm-hmm. The rock. The rock that Moses hit. Yeah, Moses struck the rock. And the Lord says he can't go into the promised land. Why? Because you did not regard me as holy. Moses treated a holy thing <clears throat> as profane, and it ultimately cost him the promised land. So... So that's one way that the holy relates to the profane. But profanity can defile holy things. You it can go the other way as well. Can you think of any examples of that? How something holy could be profaned? marriage bed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the Sabbath day. Don't profane my Sabbath. Um, the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Using the Lord's name in vain is a profanation of the divine name. You're profaning God's name. That's a holy thing. <clears throat> so sometimes the holy is a threat to the common. Sometimes the common is, I don't think I would say a threat to, but it can profane and, and treat as common, the holy.
0: What about unbelievers taking communion? Would that be an example of one? Actually, they're drinking judgment on themselves. So there, that that, would be, I, <laughs> that would I would say that's it.
1: probably in the first category. Yeah, a threat. There's a threat uh, attached there. Um, the, the three early ones that were mentioned are all in the Ten Commandments. hmm Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Look, look. Let me show you a couple of texts here that are really interesting to me. We'll, we'll go just past the Ten Commandments to Exodus 29. verse 37 What happens there? What's the relationship there between the holy and the common? What 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 happens there? Common made holy. Yeah. By by touching what? By touching the holy. Touching the altar. Yeah, you touch the altar. So, we get, This this is amazing to me. And I bounced it off one of our visiting professor speakers, and he's like, hmm, I need to think about that. Mm -hmm. So I have thought a bit about it, and I'll propose a Waltzian heresy to you. Um, (laughs) You have these three interactions between the holy and the common. The holy is sometimes a threat to the common. Sometimes the common is a threat to the holy, so to speak. It profanes the holy. And then, sometimes when the holy and the profane come in contact, the holy commutes to the profane. It's conveyed to the profane becomes holy. And in this text, seven days you'll make atonement for the altar and consecrate it and the altar will be holy and then whatever touches the altar will become holy. Whoa. Wow. Wow. It, it happens a half dozen times or so in the Old Testament. Look at chapter 30 verse 29. Uh, verse twenty-eight: the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and its basins and its stand. Here's the here's the you know the, the the model, the blueprint for the altar. Verse twenty-nine: you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Again, that's the altar and the utensils. Whatever touches them will become holy. Look at Leviticus chapter six. Verse 18. You see it again there? Verse 14 in context. It's talking about the grain offering. And whoever touches the grain offering will become holy. Hmm. Chapter 6, verse 25. Very similar. This is the law for the sin offering. So you you see the, you know, there's the, that's the start of the paragraph, the law for the sin offering. And, um, uh, verse 27, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. When any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a, in a holy place. So the sin, or excuse me, the, the burnt offering and the grain offering, you come in contact with them and they make you holy. Uh, just quickly, while we're here in Leviticus, I'll help set these categories in your head. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. The instruction the Lord gives the priests. Here are those categories. And I probably should have shown you this verse first. But you are to distinguish between the holy and the common. And the unclean and the clean. So there are the four categories, but really they reduce to three because the common breaks into two holy and, um, or excuse, wait, let me, let me. You want to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Yeah, so the common break into two categories unclean and clean, all in that common category. why do you think that is? Why do you think there are certain things that if you as a profane act defile a holy thing? But other times as a common being come in contact with them and they commute holiness to you. What why? Any ideas? Let me point you to one more text, Leviticus twenty one, verse eight. He's talking about the priest, the the, the you know, sons of Aaron, the ones in that particular line. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. There's the ultimate holy thing that conveys its holiness to profane things. I, the Lord who am holy, I sanctify you. That, I think, is the explanation of why the altar, the utensils on the altar, the burnt offering, and the grain offering, if you come in contact with them, they convey holiness to you. Why? Because those are the direct representations in this whole Levitical system of whom? Of Christ. Those are the direct representations. Now, the Sabbath, Jesus brings us into Sabbath. And in that sense, is our Sabbath, right? So, that's, there is a connection to Christ, but But the altar, the offering on the altar, He is the Lord who sanctifies us. I think those are hints in the law pointing us to, you can't profane the Son, the Son of God. You come to Him in faith with all your filth and you will not get filth on Him. He will get holiness on you. I think that's, I think that's what's happening. Now, Brian Vickers has probably had a day and a half to think this through, so ask him if that's legit, because I bounced it off him yesterday. Let's see if, if he thinks that's true. But the point I want to take away from that is, there is a way for uncleanness to get cleansed, for the unclean not simply to become clean again in the common category, but to go all the way to the category of holy, devoted to God, there for him. You know, just his and, and completely. Let me quickly give you the third um, category for shame in the Old Testament. And it's isolation and rejection. Uh, excommunication is, is the category for shame. So you've got nakedness. Why is that so shame-inducing? Because if you see who I am, you'll see the second thing. I'm defiled. I'm not what I should be. And what's the result of that? I get cast off. I get exiled. I get thrown. That's what happens then, right? The end of this chapter, the Lord pronounces judgment on them and then He enacts judgment on them. He exiles them from the garden. They're cast out. The ultimate picture of this in the Old Testament is the leper. Right? Leviticus 13. The shame. And the, and just the utter brokenness of leprosy. Exodus 13, or excuse me, Leviticus 13 is all about these crazy laws and regulations about, hey, I got a spot on my hand, you know, go show the priest and he'll check it and two weeks later he'll check it again and what do you do? And if it's healing up, then it's probably not leprosy, but if it's not healing, it might be leprosy. And what do you do with the leper? Verse 45. Leviticus 13 is all about how to tell who a leper is, but once you've found one, here's what you do to him. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. You know what happened outside the camp? That's where they took the guts of the animals that were sacrificed and they threw them out there. That's where the scapegoat was exiled. You know, on the Day of Atonement, two goats, one was chosen and his throat slit and his blood brought before God in the Holy of Holies. The other one, he was taken outside the camp. His uh, the high priest put his hand on the scapegoat's head, pronounced the sins of the people over that goat, and they sent it off into the wilderness. The, the it was the place where the lepers lived. Outside the camp was the place of exile and death. That's what it was. In the camp was my family, my friends. Um. My, my, you know, relationships? That's where Israelite culture happened. That's where God was. Outside the camp is exile and excommunication from all of those things. Do you relate to those experiences? Feeling naked, being defiled, and being cast off, rightly so. What are ways that we cope with shame? Those are the big biblical categories. and We could look at more particular texts, and, and maybe I should, but... Just for sake of time, how do we cope with um, with with those feelings of shame? What do we do with those? A lot of different things. Let's just talk about some of... rationalization. Okay, we rationalize. Yeah. What, what do you mean? Elaborate. How? Well, you just you, well everybody else does this. So okay. Bad is so bad for me. We normalize. We relativize it. We say, well, it's not so bad. Right. I'm not right. doing that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so we um we, we try to pull it down a notch or two and just go, well, it's what everyone else is doing, right? And so we just redefine. Um It's so interesting to me that Satan says, If you really wanna be <laughs> if you really wanna be wise, if you really want your eyes to be open, you want to be like God. Take this step. And in fact, that was the step that created their shame, that made the problem so much worse. That same line is being used today. It occurred to me in one particular sin, but it's probably used in a bunch. The the line today is, here's the way you will prove yourself to be enlightened and supportive and progressive and a person of the future. Not a... Repressed, judgmental, phobic, cretin. What's the issue? Homosexual. Homosexuality. Homosexual marriage. If you affirm homosexual marriage, you will be like gods. You will show that you're an advanced human being. That you're so progressive. That you're so wise. And we affirm it and, and we heap shame. Absolute shame on ourselves. There's a visceral reaction, right, to, to that type of thing. Even for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, there's there's an awareness that this is not what it ought to be. And Satan tells us, look, man, you affirm that, and you'll you'll elevate yourself as a human being. And we do it, and we degrade ourselves. Um, so, yeah, that's one way we cope. We just want to normalize. We want to say, eh, it's all okay, or it's not as bad as that. How else do we cope with shame? Self-righteousness. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, do you want to elaborate at all, Mark? I mean, yeah, I mean, just
0: uh, looking at all the other good things, maybe the good things that do come out of my life, okay. um, that kind of maybe prove that I can actually do good things apart from God,
1: perhaps. Okay. Yeah, so a self-salvation. A um, Is that what you're talking about? A, 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 a legalistic kind of, I'm just going to work harder and get it good. You know, prove. Prove that I'm good. Yeah, what else do we do? Good try. Denial. Okay, we deny it. Yeah. I don't have a problem. Totally, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll just uh, <laughs> sometimes redefine what a problem is, and sometimes just flat out lie that we have it.
0: Mm-hmm. We try to hide our shame from others, so we don't want them to see it. We put on a mask, or um, we're shallow when it comes to community with others, yeah. and you know, when when they do see that, another form of hiding it would be, okay, you're kicking me out of this community. No, you're not. I'm actually leaving. I don't need you. Sure, you yeah. Withdraw. Yeah, right. So,
1: which, right. which is a
0: form of hiding, withdrawing from,
1: yeah. from, yep. from community. Yeah. Um, I was listening to a sermon on Genesis 3 um, a while back, and <coughs> uh, the, the preacher pointed out, We still do Genesis 3 with our shame today. We do it all the time. He goes, what do you do, or if you're married, what did you do, back when someone you were really attracted to asks you out, or you get a date with them? In preparation for that engagement, most of what you do to prepare is covering up. (laughs) Isn't that true? (laughs) You know, you put on an outfit that accentuates the good parts and hides the negative parts, and... um, You make sure that wherever you're going to meet won't be at your apartment because it's a mess. And when you get into conversation, you guide it into things that you know about because heaven forbid you be exposed as not very well read in some other area, you know, or something. Most of what we do in (laughs) a dating scene and sadly in the everyday scene is covering up, even still. Um, I read a short little selection of a long philosophy book, uh, jean, Jean-Paul jean Sartre, um, the philosopher, the 20th century philosopher, was working over this classic philosophical question that none of us would ever ask, but it's common for philosophers. How do I know that my consciousness is not the only consciousness in the universe? How do I know that you aren't just robots? And his answer was the ubiquity of shame. Everybody feels shame. And here's how he explained it. He goes, imagine that you're in a room and you're peeping through the keyhole looking out at other people and you feel a certain sense of glee and self-satisfaction because you can see them. And and then suddenly you notice that someone is looking back through the keyhole at you or you hear a creak of a floorboard behind you and you suddenly realize that you're being looked at. Instantly you feel shame. Well, that's what we all feel. We all feel shame all the time. And The reason we feel shame, in Sartre's explanation, was not a moralistic shame, like I've broken some laws and I'm naughty. But it was just an existential shame. I am the object of someone else's observation. Someone else is seeing and evaluating me. That's what shame is in his mind. Because we all feel it, it's proof that other people are real consciousnesses. That was his argument. The ubiquity of shame was the basis for his whole argument in his book, Being and Nothingness. Wow. Yeah, we all hide. And everybody knows we all hide. Uh, any other coping mechanisms? Mark? Uh,
0: it seems like Adam and Eve, maybe one of the first things they turn to is blaming, blaming
1: Totally. Else. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you know this thing about internet, uh, cyberbullying they call it? Mm-hmm. cyberbullying. Do you know why that's happening? I think one of the fundamental reasons is there's so much unresolved shame in me that when I can hide uh, in the anonymity of the internet and find someone else who's vulnerable... Oh my goodness, the attack is relentless. A couple months ago I read this article in the New York Times New York Times magazine, which comes out on Sundays, you know. Um, um what is it called? How one tweet how one tweet how one stupid tweet blew up Justine Sacco's life. And uh she works for a media organization who is the parent family for um, Vimeo and The Daily Beast. Uh, and a couple other. She's a PR person for them. She, she had a. Did you guys? Did anybody read this article? How one stupid tweet blew up Justine Sacco's life. She has a few Twitter followers. Literally at the time that this incident happened, um, I think it was in 2014, so not too long ago. She had 170 Twitter followers. She goes on this trip to Cape Town, and she's just you know running this stream of tweets to make jokes about various people. Hey, I'm back in London. Bad teeth. Pickle sandwiches. You know whatever. And, uh, and and as she gets on the plane and is heading out of London to Cape Town, she tweets. Um, let me grab it here. She tweets. Uh, okay, going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. Bad idea, right? Her explanation later was she was trying to make the joke about the stereotype that AIDS only ever afflicts the black African population. And it doesn't. And it was meant to be satire and everyone of course took it as racist. Mm-hmm. The flight from, from London to Cape Town is about 11 hours and by the time she landed she was the number one worldwide trending topic on Twitter, retweeting that comment and then it had created its own hashtag, has Justine landed yet? and they tried to find someone who is a Twitter person and would, would catch her at the Cape Town airport and get a picture of her. And in fact, somebody did, and she got fired from her organization. She suffered post-traumatic stress disorder and barely has patched her life together today. Why? Why the vitriol? Why the vehement attack? of? Because we all feel ashamed, and when we see someone else who's vulnerable, we will judge and, and, and just just crush them. I think one of the root reasons is shame in our own hearts. To end, absolutely.
0: Yeah, it's pushing shame on those other people, right? I mean, it's heaping more shame on them, so others look at
1: them. And Pre- precisely, right. it's exactly that. It's um, you know, if I can if I can throw enough mud on someone else, it'll make it look like I'm not as as filthy. You know, mm-hmm. this public shaming thing, and gosh, it's not new in American history, sadly. I, in, in studying for this. I learned the distinction between the stocks and the pillory. Do you know what the distinction is? The stocks—they were both wooden mechanisms that were meant for public shaming. One of them was you—you'd you'd have your feet locked into a wooden, you know, couple of boards that would come together and lock your feet in, and uh, and and that was it. You know, so you were free to move your hands, whatever. The pillory was the one that you'd stick your head in with your arms, and you'd be totally, basically immobilized, and people could throw rotten fruit at your head. That was a good punishment. <laughs> Whoever ever thought those were good ways to heal people's sicknesses? You know, or their moral diseases and, and, and right their wrongs. Why? Why did we? Public shaming has a long history in this culture. What the? Okay, so those are some of the ways we cope. We got to get to Christ. We got to get to the gospel here. Let's think about what these is. things. Yes, right. We got nakedness. We got defilement and uncleanness, and we've got being an outcast and isolated. You can immediately see how the gospel attaches to all three of those, don't you? We could talk so much about Christ's life, how it's clear that he can't, just the incarnation, it's clear that Jesus lived a life of deliberate shame. I mean, heaping shame on himself. Deliberately born to a woman who wasn't married. Instant shame. Into a poor family. Common. Blue collar. Social shame attached to that. Then when he starts his ministry, he deliberately attaches himself to whom? Social outcasts. And gains their reputation. And the shame attached to that. Toward the beginning of his ministry, the woman at the well incident happens, right? Sits down with her in, in, in Samaria and, and Samaritan woman and, and associates with her and that was just normal for him, I and mean, that was just his agenda. And uh, so the shame that attached to him, but it really all came to the fore at the cross. And um, so let's just quickly touch on these aspects of the cross. You have nakedness. What what is that? Well, it's making yourself vulnerable. Right? Isn't that the point of the nakedness in the garden was they were utterly vulnerable, they were completely exposed. God himself made himself vulnerable in the incarnation. And what did we do? The moment we could get at him, we killed him. That that cyberbullying, public shaming thing has a long history. It goes back way further than Western culture. As soon as he made God made himself vulnerable. We we killed him. And then literally on the cross, stripped naked. Hung there naked. The most shameful death, uh, as far as I know, in, in human history. Deliberately associated with thieves and robbers. It was part of the prophetic description of how the cross would go. Why? Why nakedness? He was... Naked and shamed in that way so that we could be clothed. So that we could be covered in a righteousness not our own. So that that felt sense of shame because I'm exposed and vulnerable could become in Christ a recognition that this is, this is not a righteousness of my own, but man is it good. Did you see, have you seen? I mean, look, right? So that there's no more shame. In the Christian community. Yes, there's still defilement and corruption. I'll talk about that in just a second. But yes, there's still stuff in me that shouldn't be there. But I'm God's renovation project and, you know, the sign in the mall. Excuse our mess. We'll, we'll be done here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what's going on in you. And so when you expose that vulnerability to someone else, there's no shame left in that. Because number one, Jesus bore that. Number two, Jesus covered all that positionally. And number three, practically, Jesus by the Spirit is transforming you to where there won't be anything left that's shame-inducing. And shame. None! Someday it'll all be gone. Defilement. Um, the corruption, right? The corruption from me was imputed to him. 1 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. All that corruption, all that defilement, the rottenness, the filth, the uncleanness, was put on Him. The, the good news of the Gospel is not, listen, you're not really naked, you're not really corrupted, you're not really outcast, you don't deserve to be isolated. No, the Gospel tells you, yes, all of what you feel inside, you deserve, and it's way worse than you could even imagine. That's what the Gospel tells you. It does not tell you, hey, don't worry about it, man. Just... Get naked and just get used to it, right? That's where our culture's going. Just get comfortable with who you are in all your filth. Well, the gospel doesn't say, no, you're not really filthy. The gospel says you're worse than you could imagine. And then the gospel tells you all that filth was put on Jesus and the feeling like you should be condemned for this is true, but you just don't get condemned. He did for you. You know we're worse than we thought. All of that—that that I'm naked and corrupt and all and, well, that's true. And then the isolation. I mean, you know, Michael just dealt with all of that marvelously. My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Do you know why? Because we deserve to be forsaken. I mean, thoroughly deserve it. We deserve to go outside the camp. Look at Hebrews 12. We need to wrap up with two texts. Uh, Hebrews 13. First, let's do that. Hebrews chapter 13. verse 11 the bodies of those well those animals verse 10 we have an altar hebrews 13:10 we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the blood of priests uh, by the by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp so Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That picture of the leper outside the camp going to the place where the guts of the sacrificed animals would be and they would rot, where the scapegoat would go, where where, where death and destruction, where Jesus deliberately went outside the camp. He was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. That's not just an accident. That's not just because... That, that was to fulfill that picture. He went outside the camp. And bore our sins out there because that's where outcasts deserve to go. What you feel about your shame is true. You don't deserve to be welcomed into community and have people say, we are glad you're here, we love you, we accept you. You don't deserve, you deserve to be outcast. And he was an outcast, went outside the camp for you so that your shame, look at verse Thirteen, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There's a huge application that I want to bring out of this. But I need to, if we have time, I need to bounce back to Hebrews 12. And this is where we're going to possibly end, we'll see. Um, Hebrews 12, two, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus knew he was going right into the teeth of shame. Mm -hmm. He knew that. One of the forms of shame is to despise something, right? It's such an interesting verb object to me. Despising the shame. Um, He was despising what was about to happen when he would be despised. <clears throat> um, what does that mean? Here is what I think it means. It means God chose for His Son to be born into a life of shame and live in a in a in a ministry that constantly brought shame upon Him, and ultimately die in the most shameful manner possible. Why? Because shame, this perpetual enemy that has haunted the human race since the garden. This companion that causes us to hide and cover up and be aware that we're not what we should be because we're defiled and corrupted and we deserve to be cast out. He intended for that to come on his son. This shame that has been one of our greatest enemies since the fall and really an enemy of God's good purposes to draw us together, make us clean, holy like him. In the Incarnation, and specifically in the Atonement, God took this one of these greatest weapons of evil, shame itself, and used it to mock and then ultimately destroy shame itself. He used shame to destroy shame. That's what he did. John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. We, know, we no longer have to die because Jesus died. Well, I want to call this the shaming of shame in the shaming of Jesus. That's what was happening on the cross. He used shame to free us from shame. Isn't that incredible? That's that's what the gospel tells us. The cross looks like the ultimate victory of shame. But the resurrection proves that the cross was the ultimate defeat of shame. That we're no longer outside the camp because we've been cleansed. And so when we're made vulnerable, we can connect with each other the way we were supposed to not feel ashamed. All because of the cross. So, applications, gosh, I've got... Talk to someone. Stop hiding. Lots of times, the first step out of shame is to expose what's hidden and you've talked to God about, but sometimes you need to talk to someone else about. It. Love to elaborate on that. We don't time. Second thing, stop laboring so hard to feel clean. Right? You're so ashamed... You feel like, oh my gosh, I did that horrible thing again. (sighs) And eventually you feel like you've done enough penance. And so now you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna work so hard so you can feel clean. And then the next time you fail, because you no longer feel clean, you go, who cares? And you give up and you wallow in what you've just done. Why does it matter anymore? I'm not clean anyway. The gospel tells you, you are clean. You can fight from a position of cleanness. That's what the cross tells you. So fight the sins that you know are forgiven. Fight them, because they're all forgiven, if you're in Christ. And the third thing I was going to say is, by application, Hebrews 13, verse 13, go outside the camp with him. What happens, do you remember, there are some holy things that don't get profaned, When they come and come, they commute holiness to those profane things. That's Jesus. He has made us now a holy thing. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are salt, you are light. Light reverses darkness. Salt halts corruption. So we don't have to wonder, oh my gosh, I can't get near those shameful things. We can stride right into those shameful things, because it's not going to get on us anymore. We are Salt, we halt corruption. We're light. We dispel darkness. I mean, in Him we are, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying we're God. But. And so, because Jesus has gone outside the camp and borne our shame for us, and because He's holy, and because He's made us so radically holy, we don't have to withdraw from those unclean things, nervous that they will profane us. Not anymore. We can't be profaned. We're His. And He's made us Holy through and through. So, draw near. Draw near the shame. Draw near the corruption. And bring an end. Bring an end to it. Alright?